Welcome to Science Questions. I'm Sherry Quinn. And I'm Susie Montgomery. That was Randall Williams performing one of the songs he wrote based on Alan Lightman's book, Einstein's Dreams. Lightman, a poet, theoretical physicist, and prolific novelist in equal parts, is most well known for this first work of fiction all about time, the fourth dimension. The way that we relate to time is is the vehicle for exploring human nature. Lightman reads from his book. And this is the dream of the 14th of May, 1905. There is a place where time stands still. Raindrops hang motionless in air. Pendulums of clocks float mid-swing. Dogs raise their muzzles in silent howls. Pedestrians are frozen on the dusty streets, their legs cocked as if held by strings. The aromas of dates, mangoes, coriander, cumin are suspended in space. As a traveler approaches this place from any direction, he moves more and more slowly. His heartbeats grow farther apart. His breathing slackens. His temperature drops. His thoughts diminish until he reaches dead center and stops. For this is the center of time. Who would make pilgrimage to the center of time? Parents with children and lovers. There is a place where time stands still. Raindrops hang motionless. Dogs howl silently. Following suit in the genre known as magical realism, Lightman explores time, imagining what Einstein would have been dreaming about in the year 1905 in Bern, Switzerland right before he comes up with his theory of relativity. My own background, I I grew up in in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I did watch a lot of movies because my father owned movie theaters, and I could get into movies free, which was uh, really impressed the 15-year-old girls that I was dating. With a father who owned a movie theater and a mother who was a braille typist and dancer, Lightman was destined for the arts, though his head was also in the stars. The, the way that I was a little bit different is that I had an interest in both the sciences and the arts. And I had one group of friends who were my science buddies, and we would do chemistry experiments and set uh, rooms on fire and that kind of thing. And then I had my artist friends. These were the friends who wrote poetry and, and wrote for the literary, the school literary magazine. And I was the only one who went back and forth between these two groups of friends. That made me a little bit odd. I think as I've gotten older, I've become more and more conscious of the fact that we live too fast, uh, especially in in the Western world, that our pace of life is is too quick for our own good. So I, I, I prefer trying to imagine worlds in which time moves more slowly or we take out more time to slow down and think about who we are and where we're going. So that that's kind of a realization that has come in recent years after writing the book. About halfway through the book, it picks up. A chapter about speed, where all is in motion. Houses and apartments are mounted on wheels and sailing down the streets. The air whines with the sound of motors and locomotion. When a person steps out of its front door at sunrise, they hit the ground running to catch up with their office building. In this world, time passes more slowly for people in motion, leaving no one sitting reading under a tree or gazing at the ripples in a pond. No one is still but rather moving to save time. That particular dream world happens to be the one that reflects the actual theory of relativity, where the faster you move relative to another person, the slower your clocks tick compared to that person's clocks. That one particular dream world is is the one and only one that is based on the actual Einstein's actual theory of relativity and all of the other ones are just made up. The theory of relativity overturned the concept of motion from Newton's day by positing that all motion is relative. Time was no longer uniform and absolute, and physics could no longer be understood as space by itself and time by itself. 
Instead, an added dimension had to be taken into account with curved space-time. Lightman has made fundamental contributions to the theory of relativity, his focus being relativistic gravitation theory, with the significant discovery of a structural instability in orbiting disks of matter that form around black holes. It is from this place that Lightman arrives, a professor at MIT of both writing and physics, the first to hold a joint appointment in both physics and humanities. Topic sentences are fatal in fiction. Because in fiction writing, you, you want your reader to, to, to participate in the, in the scene that you're creating. You don't want to tell them a, a recipe at the very beginning for how to think about the trip. You, you want them to be blindsided and to, to, to become part of the creative process. I realized when I was started at writing fiction that, that my urge, my inclination to use topic sentences was my scientific side coming in, and I had to say, no, no, that's not right here. You have to be quiet and sit at the back of the bus for a while. <laughs> so I have felt the scientific and artistic sides of myself battling with each other at times, uh, and other, other times they, they come together and work together. Einstein's Dreams is a timeless mystical book, a book of poetry where Lightman takes us into an emotional fourth dimension that seems to resonate with an obscure but common experience. It is a surprising book. If you started reading standing, you would end sitting, ensconced in something deep and soft. The physics of time is ever-present, but subtle, used to inform a philosophical journey into various worlds of time. In one world, time is a line that terminates at the present, where people cling to the present as if hanging from a cliff. In another world, time moves backwards. Overripe fruit hardens and returns to the tree. Old people grow young regaining strength, energy, and life. What if you had one more day? What would you say? Would you ask for that day? Or leave it alone? Years go by, leaving their traces behind. We are still just sitting here in time. What if you could pause right now? That was 8th grade science students Emma and Saffron practicing in a stairwell at Salt Lake Arts Academy, a charter school in downtown Salt Lake, where Susie and I spent the afternoon talking to musicians, teachers, and students, all rehearsing for the upcoming performance that night at the Leonardo. Timing is everything, and Randall Williams is herding cats, helping a group of 15 to 20 students write the music to their own songs based on Lightman's book. So, let's do, just for a second, just for a second. There's a chord, and now here's another chord, and here's another chord. Is it like a country blues? A country blues. What is this now? It's turnaround. So it's blues. It's 12-bar blues. It's the same stuff that you guys did. I did the same exact thing. I made one of the songs in this cycle that I'm now getting paid for, and people are downloading on iTunes a 12-bar blues tune just like yours was. And what I did is I pulled a song out of this book that I liked, and I just, I just, I started playing this riff, and I grabbed the words just like you guys did. So just imagine, I go, well, I woke up this morning, so time had stopped. Went downstairs to tell my mom. You know, it could have just as easily been those lyrics. You see what I mean? So my creative process was the same as your creative process. Does that make sense? That's cool. So, but here's this other song that I did. Check this out. Check this out. I did the exact same progression that you guys also did. I did that same thing. Check this out. I'm Jen Hodge, and I'm the event producer. I'm Jenny White, and I'm a science teacher. I teach 6th and 8th graders at the Salt Lake Arts Academy. I'm Dina Metkowski, and I am 12. Um, I really like that a lot of it is focused on the arts. Um, it's not just you have one class that maybe once a week to do an art you have two classes. What have you guys been studying about time? We were talking about the, the space-time continuum, the fabric of space-time, and how at the center of a black hole time stops, and how time not only light warps but time warps and like things like that, and that 
we don't know when time started or what it actually is, so things like that. I found it really fascinating. A lot of times when it's about things we don't know, um, I really like the subject of those instead of learning about just sitting in a room learning about things, but um, when we're doing experiments, that's the fun part. Cool. And I noticed that your lyrics were time Time is precious, there's not enough time. Do you experience that already at 12 years old? Not a lot, but there are some times when I'm up really late doing homework, but, and I feel like I wanted to, you know, have some more free time. Why do you think you prefer subjects that we don't know everything about? I guess it's because um, people haven't discovered it yet, so you don't, you aren't being taught everything about it, and you're given some room to think, well, what if it was like this, what if it was like that? making music and we're basing it off of time and how time flows and and we base the songs off of um, the theme of that time is short and yeah and it's been a challenging experience like yeah it's definitely put my uh, skill to the max so yeah yeah so right now we're practicing for the performance we so far got a lot of good songs, and yeah, so our band is about to play right now, so. I woke up this morning, and I looked at the clock, and that's when I noticed that time had stopped. So I went downstairs, and I talked to my mom. I told her a story about how time has stopped. stopped. All right, let's go back upstairs. It was now late in the afternoon, the clock ticking, and they were down to the wire, a few hours remaining before the big show and still some skills to hone. Awesome. But Dina and the Stairway duo were ready to take to the stage alongside musician Randall Williams, a classically trained folk singer based in Maine and who travels the world performing his music. Susie sat down with Williams in the school music room. He had his guitar in hand and an open heart to share with us. I'm Randall Williams, and I've come to Salt Lake through a couple different grants and also um, the Intermountain Acoustic Music Association to do a performance of Einstein's Dreams, and it's a musical cycle that's based on the novel by Alan Lightman. I just was interested in having you to start by talking about your background as a musician. I grew up with a Little Orphan Annie record. That's pretty well where it all started. My mom took me to go see Little Orphan Annie, and I was singing along. And soon I picked up a guitar and started playing, um, you know, folk songs. And then I was in a band for a while, and I went off to college and played some more music. And then I decided I was going to let all that go. But I really couldn't let it go completely. And so I went back to conservatory to get a degree in vocal music in Belgium, and then had a private teacher for a while. And then I decided that a classical music wasn't really doing it for me. And so I think what I've come back to after leaving the conservatory and touring um, around the world, I, I lived in Europe for a while and have lived in the States now for six years uh, consistently on the acoustic scene, playing clubs, bars, cafes, fine arts venues, that kind of thing. I think what I've come back to now is merging that classical sensibility with the acoustic folk stuff that I love so much. So very formal music education. Talk about the transition between being classically trained and, and maybe the environment you were in in Belgium, and then how that differed striking out in the folk scene. Well, the classical track is very prescribed, and it's very specific, and the work you can get is is also very specific. You do um, 
you know, it's like there's a Messiah every year at Christmas. So there's always going to be a part for a bass to sing at a Messiah at Christmas. Or there will be oratorios given several times through the year at a church. Or there will be choir work or something like that. Or there will be operas that you can go apply to a company and audition and get accepted or not accepted. And that's a fairly specific track. And there aren't, there don't seem to be a lot of ways to break out of that. There are a few you know, classically trained ensembles that are breaking through that. But mostly, that's kind of the prescribed track. And that didn't really speak to me at all. Because, um, well, firstly, I'm hyperactive. <laughs> and so, um, in, in a way, part of this is engaging my hyperactivity. So as a folk musician, your options are also fairly limited. You tour around the country in a car, you sleep on people's couches, you play gigs for somewhere between 50 to $200, and you get sandwiches and bagels as a result, and, you know, occasionally beer. But, like, it's not... That's kind of the track as well for most folk musicians. And so what I wanted to do was fuse the two as well as my, my business sensibilities and do all of that stuff at the same time. And so I've created this cycle trying to fuse both of those things so that I could build something bigger and sort of help bring the classical audience along but also help bring the folk audience along. So now we've got a show where you can go to you know a city like Salt Lake and perform in the Science Center and get grants to work with schools you know, like we have here at the Academy. And so now we've got students involved making music. We've got some professionals from the community who have come in to sit in. We've got the cello player and the, and the percussionists who are just fantastic, and Jen Hodge is playing uh, piano and singing. And we've got this ensemble thing built. It's a 200-seat theater. We're going to fill it up. It just feels like it's got so much possibility, you know? So that's, that's what's most exciting for me. Do you have a classical piece you could play at all or anything you can play? That I have a classical piece that I could sing for you a cappella without piano. Would that, make, would that that'd, work? That'd be great. <clears throat> so it's this little, I'll sing to you this little piece of this Italian art song from the 16th century. And I often joke that it's a Britney Spears song because the lyrics say, basically, I love you, I love you, I love you. And if you don't believe me, cut my heart open. It's tattooed in there. And that, that's something that Gaga <laughs> or Britney could have, you know, anyway. Amarilli, mia bella. Non credo del mio cor, dolce desio, d'esser tu l'amor mio, credilo pur, e si ti morta sale, dubitar non ti vale, aprimi il petto, e vedrai scritto in cuore. Amarilli, Amarilli, Amarilli è il mio amore. You know, you just walk down the street, you wouldn't think oh. that came out of you necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to bring the classical tools to the contemporary acoustic style. See, this cycle has got elements of the classical song cycle where things repeat. There are characters who show up. There are musical themes that come back. Keys are chosen for certain reasons. And all that stuff is, is not obvious to a folk audience. And it is very obvious to a classical audience. And so this is kind of fusing both of those. You're really sort of creating something new, I think, especially moving into the science realm with Einstein's dreams. It's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about, you said you're hyperactive. Did that end up taking you away from classical music onto your adventures? I think you've, you've been a lot of places. You're very worldly. Um, you even lived on a sailboat. Can you just talk a little bit about moving out of the classical world and going on your worldly adventures? Yeah, the, the hyperactivity for me is something I grew up with and had a real struggle at managing as a kid. Uh, I was on and off of uh, prescription drugs trying to figure it out. I was watching my friends use drugs and alcohol to try to figure it out. And I think that's my love for teaching, my love for students, especially at this age. I, for a time, I actually, I've taught almost, almost every grade level. I've taught elementary, uh, middle, high school, and college and um, at, at, at different points. And I think my love for teaching and my love for engaging students is seeing all of that raw energy looking for a place to go. What I saw today in these 6th, 7th, and 8th graders were a lot of kids who are really bored by school and need the challenge. And these are kids who are exceptionally gifted. They've got all kinds of skills, and uh, they just really need to be engaged. And so for me, the challenge wasn't school as much as finding ways that school could actually engage stuff that I was interested in. So when I left, um, let's see, 
I was, I came very close to being inpatient for my depression and my hyperactivity. Came very close to them locking me away in a facility. Um, and how I was saved, I was saved by a teacher at an alternative school who looked at me and said, what's your dream? What is it you want to do? And we had this opportunity in the last half of our high school, in the last half of our senior year of high school, to do whatever we wanted. And I wanted to go to Europe. And I said, well, I want to go to Europe. And she looked at this kid who was inches away from being hospitalized, whose friends had committed suicide, who were bringing knives to school, who were doing drugs. She looked at this kid and she said, how are we going to get you there? And the we part of that just electrified me. And I got all excited because I knew that I had an ally who was going to help me do it. And so as a senior in high school, I went off to Europe. And it was helping me engage the challenges that I was already ready to engage because I had a lot on the ball. I just couldn't channel it into a way that the education system could take me in. And so that sparked my taste for adventure. When I went off to college the following year, I said, how can I get back to Europe? I was immediately plugged into the foreign language program. I went back to Europe several times, went to North Africa. And the day I graduated from college, I got on a plane to go to an orientation to work in Japan. And I worked in Japan for a while, went back to Europe, and while I was there, chose to move into a sailboat and sail off to Africa without any sailing experience. <laughs> I don't, so you almost got in an accident on the North Sea. It's true. It. <laughs> um, I took every precaution that I could, and I feel like I did it very intelligently. People around me look at me and say that it was a very stupid decision. And I feel like it was the decision that I had to make. And I did as much as I could to be prepared but when that moment comes, you just never know. And indeed, I was, I mean, I could not have been a thousand yards away from a super tanker that was bearing down on me in the North Sea at 3 a.m. It was pitch black. And the tanker saw my radar reflector, my tiny little aluminum radar reflecting ball that was on top of the mast. And had the tanker never seen that, I wouldn't be here today. But it's like into the wild. He did everything he thought he could. He needed to push himself so hard and there he was, out in the middle of nowhere, and one decision at the end of a long string of decent decisions and good decisions did him in. And that could, have, that could have been me. How did you come across the book Einstein's Dreams? And um, what do you know about Alan Lightman? Well, I came across Einstein's Dreams when it was given to me in 2003. I fell madly in love with the book, and I read it again several years later and then was in a bookstore the summer before this cycle started to happen, a little bookstore in western Massachusetts called the Montague Book Mill, and the slogan is, Books You Don't Need in a Place You Can't Find. It's out <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And I saw it, and I remembered it, and I loved it, and I wanted to share it with my friend that I was with, and so I bought a copy so that we could read it together. And while I was reading it, I had this gig with the Bijou Orchestra in Bay City, Michigan. Uh, Leo Najar was the conductor, and he and I talked about doing a cycle together. And after that gig that I did with them, we did a fireworks gig, 100,000 people on ABC TV and fireworks going off. It was really quite the production. And after the gig, we were all sitting around over pizza, and Leo said, you know what I'd really like to do? I'd like to do a cycle of songs. And I said, well, I'm in the middle of reading this great book, Einstein's Dreams. What if I started writing that cycle? And his only question was, can it be a whole evening of music? And I said, absolutely. And he said, let's do it. And his wife, Regina, had a copy of the book. And so we sat down to work on it together. And he had ideas. And he decided to come up to Maine to meet me. And I called Alan Lightman. And I, I told him that I'd be very interested in meeting him for lunch. And he said, I can't meet you. I'm not in Boston in the summer. I'm in Maine. And I said, well, where in Maine are you? It turns out he was 10 minutes down the street from my house. So Leo Najar came up with his wife, Regina. And we all met for lunch with Dr. Lightman. And I played him the few songs that I had written already. And he smiled this big smile. You know, you're always nervous. You play that. You say, look, I've written songs about your book. I hope you like them. And he smiled this big smile. And he says, that sounds great. I'd love to do whatever I can to support this becoming reality. And so with that, Leo and I went off to, uh, I to compose and Leo to orchestrate. And I wrote the remainder of the songs, except for two of them, which Leo wrote. And Leo did the orchestrations for all of them. And we premiered it in February of 2011 in the State Theater in Michigan. We recorded the show. It was a double CD, a vast production. There was a, a video projection behind us. And the, it went from genre. It went all the way from classical, sort of neoclassical, all the way through heavy funk with a rock and horn section. <laughs> 
the series of meditations in the book, I call them meditations. Uh, do you have a favorite or do you have one that really sticks with you? The one that really sticks with me is the end of the world. And I never knew why. But when we were in the studio recording the studio version of this CD, the producer looks up at me after we were done tracking the vocals. He says, yeah, right. That would never happen. In the end of the world, the vision that Dr. Lightman's created in this book is that people all join hands because everyone knows the exact moment when the world's going to end. And as it gets closer and closer and closer, these people start doing things like saying hello to their neighbors or going swimming naked in the fountains of the city or meeting people they've never met and walking with them hand in hand. And at the end of the world, everyone holds hands, they form a giant circle, and they're all still together. And my producer looks at me and says, that'll never happen. They'll be looting and rioting. The vision that Dr. Lightman created of the way things could be if we all knew of how we would all join together despite all of our differences is, I think, the juice that made Einstein's dreams the bestseller that it is. That's wonderful. I thought when I read that chapter, I really thought about how maybe the most vivid and alive living happens closest to death. Leo Nejar um, died the day after he finished the recording. And it was personally and professionally devastating. And in the months that followed, as I tried to recover and played the concerts that he and I were going to play together by myself, needing to bring this project, his project, to life and feeling like life can be very, very short really struck home for me. And today... The girls who wrote the song, one, one, there were two girls who wrote a song, and the lyrics were, what if we all had a clock inside of us? Would we know when that clock would stop? These eighth graders have no idea what they're saying, but yet they do. <laughs> <laughs> would you mind playing that song? Could you play it? Not at all. September 1907. Everyone knows it. In the city of Bern, it's the same as in all other cities. One year before the end, schools close their doors. Why learn for the future with so brief a future? Delighted children play hide-and-seek in the arcades, skip stones on the river, squander their coins on peppermint and licorice. Their parents let them do what they wish. One month before the end, the Bundeshaus closes. Likewise, the Federal Telegraph, the watch factory, the mill. What need is there for commerce and industry? At the outdoor cafes, people sit and sip coffee and talk easily of their lives. Liberation fills the air. Just now, a brown-eyed woman is talking with her mother about how little time they spent together in her childhood. They're planning a trip to Lucerne. They'll fit two lives into the little time remaining. At the bakery on Marktgasse, the thick-fingered baker puts dough in the oven and sings. These days, people are polite and pay promptly. Money is losing its value. They talk easily of picnics, of taking walks in the mid-afternoon, or listening to their children's stories. They don't seem to mind that the world will soon end, because everyone shares the same fate. A world with one month is a world of equality. And the streets swirl with laughter. Neighbors who have never before spoken greet each other as friends. They strip off their clothes and bathe in the fountains or dive in the river. They swim until exhausted, then lie in the thick grass and read poetry. A barrister and a postal clerk who have never before met walk arm in arm through the botanical gardens, smiling at the cyclamen and aster. In a world of one day, they are equal.
doors of a side street, a man and woman lean against a wall, drinking beer and eating smoked beef. Afterwards, she will take him to her apartment. For years, she has loved this man. And although she is married to someone else, on today, the last day of the world, she will satisfy her wants. A few souls gallop through the streets doing good deeds, attempting to correct their misdeeds of the past. Theirs are the only unnatural smiles. on the grounds of the Kunstmuseum. Men, women, and children form a giant circle, holding hands. No one speaks. It is so absolutely quiet that each person can hear the heartbeat of the person to his right or left. This is the last minute of the world. In the absolute silence, a purple genshin in the garden catches the light on the underside of its blossom, glows for a moment, then dissolves among the other flowers. Behind the museum, the needled leaves of a larch shudder gently as a breeze moves through the tree. A cloud floats in the sky, a sparrow flutters. River bends the sunlight with each ripple on its skin. No one speaks. In the last seconds, it is as if everyone has leaped off Topaz Peak holding hands. The end approaches like approaching ground. Cool air rushes by. Bodies are weightless. The silent horizon yawns for miles. And below... The vast blanket of snow hurtles nearer and nearer to envelop this circle of pinkness and light. That was Randall Williams, back in a moment after this station break. Careening through the streets. The air winds with locomotion. A man hits the ground running, catches up to his office building, his desk propelled in circles. He gallops home at the end of the day. No one is still. And at night, people dream of youth, dream of speed. Support for Science Questions comes from the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu science. Steve Eaton is a freelance writer who lives in Logan. He writes a column that appears in the Deseret News every other Saturday. I was once elected exit row captain. I know, I know, you're thinking, how could Steve Eaton be an exit row captain? The exit row captain is a guy who has to personally save everyone once the plane crashes. Believe me, I was as surprised as anyone because truth be known, I'm not an experienced flyer. It might be because that day I used my wife's modern, sophisticated luggage like the other business people have instead of the Snapple gym bag I usually use. My wife's carry-on is the type of luggage that comes with a pop-out hand grip so you can pull it behind you on two rollers. I really doubt that made the difference, however, because for some reason when I walked, the suitcase did too. It tilted from wheel to wheel, slowly gaining momentum back and forth. 
No one else seemed to have that problem, so I tried to ignore it. It looked like I was in the middle of my own personal earthquake. It couldn't be because I was wearing big boy pants instead of my usual blue jeans. There were lots of business people on the plane, and they were all wearing big boy pants. Some even wore suit jackets and ties. I know it wasn't because I impressed anyone going through the security checkpoint. No matter how composed and experienced I try to look, I lose that air of projected confidence once they take all my gadgets away from me and make me take off my shoes, belt, coat, watch, glasses, and even my dentures. That really bugs me because I don't wear dentures. I go in one side proud and strong in my big boy pants and end up blocking traffic on the other side, holding up my pants with one hand as I desperately try to round up my stuff with the other hand as it goes by on the conveyor belt. Meanwhile, the experienced travelers pass right on by me like I'm just this minor irritation. When it comes to the actual flying part, I still raise my feet slightly off the floor to give the plane added lift as we hurtle down the runway. It works. The airplane hardly ever crashes when I'm on it. And sometimes I take out the emergency safety card that shows all the happy plane crash people floating in their seat cushions and follow along as instructed by the flight attendant. So I don't look like an experienced traveler. Despite all that, it was on this recent flight when I heard the call. When they started describing the responsibilities of the exit row captain, I realized I was the only one sitting in the row. Did I panic? No. I had this inner sense of knowing that it was my time. Later, the flight attendant questioned me directly about whether or not I was ready to assume my important responsibilities. I looked her in the eye and said I was ready. I was not afraid, but she, despite her years of experience, did look a little frightened. That may be because I was sitting there with my shoes, belt, and cell phone on my lap. I didn't look back, but I could feel the silent, quiet support and prayers of my co-passengers. And I just knew, I just knew that my time had come. No lives were lost on that flight. But if there had been snakes in the plane or someone shooting at the president, I would have responded. I pay attention at the movies. So next time you see a happy, peaceful man wandering through the airport holding up his shoes and belt with one hand and holding up his pants with the other, show some respect. It could be me, just another humble but proud exit row captain. This is Steve Eaton. Support for Science Questions comes from Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. Welcome back to Science Questions with Sherry Quinn and Susie Montgomery. Susie talks to musician Randall Williams about the Einstein's Dream's performance, based on the 1993 novel by Alan Lightman. Tell me what you're expecting tonight. The rehearsal yesterday was astounding. The musicians were incredible. Jen Hodge put together this team. The cellist is the funkiest, sassiest, and the um, percussionist has not a white bone in his body. And Jen played piano and sang, and Sam hit that cello hard, and Ricardo just went to town on the drums in a way that felt really tight and really fun and really exciting. And I expect tonight will be a high-energy right on board show where we give the students a chance to play a couple of songs up front. We play a short first half of the cycle ending with the loudest, biggest dream called Dreaming of Speed. And then we start the second half with the, the end of the world. And then we finish it with um, a moment in season, this big sort of number that has an orchestra and choir in it normally, and uh, lead off uh, with the traveler and then into the epilogue and just leave them right there in this place, and yet transport it. I think tonight's going to be a great night. How do you feel about Einstein? Yeah, I, um, I've i really enjoyed getting to know Einstein through this and through reading his uh, the Isaacson biography. Um, there have been a number of statements about creativity being more important than fact that I like a lot because it's such a big thinker. I mean, Einstein was developmentally disabled. I mean, let's just be clear about that. Einstein had Asperger's. He had the same thing that, you know, it's, it's on the same continuum with ADHD, the stuff I've got. Mm-hmm. He didn't fit in well in school. Nope. You know, he was struggling to hold down a job when he finally got, his friend finally set him up with this patent clerk gig that he got in Switzerland. But he graduated from college and spent three years being homeless with his wife, who was also a cousin of his, pregnant. And then he doesn't know what the heck he's going to do. And his friend scores him this job in this patent office where he has to travel to Switzerland to be there. And he finally gets this job where he's working down the street from the Swiss clock that all clocks 
would later run by. In the patent office, where the patents were rolling in around how they were going to synchronize time over distance. Wow. I find it incredible. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to the show tonight, and I'll let you go back up there with the kids, and we'll see you there. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you. He just has an incredible style, an incredible way of communicating with the kids that shows that he really gets it at their level, and he can reach the, the girl who is hard, is hard to pull out of her shell, as well as the boys who are wanting to jump off the ceilings, <laughs> and he knows how to reach everyone in a way that really pulls them in and keeps them engaged. Jenny White is a science teacher at the school where she integrates science with dance, visual arts, theater, and music. Her friend Jen Hodge is a classically trained folk musician who wears many hats in the community. Aside from being a freelance musician, she's the educational director for Hawkwatch International, bringing raptors and native Utah birds into statistics classrooms. Hodge conceived of and brought this Einstein's Dreams event to Salt Lake City. Susie interviewed Ms. White and Ms. Hodge pre-performance. I met him um, six years ago, maybe, and um, I've, I've kind of followed his career, and when he started doing this Einstein's Dreams song cycle, he uh, very early on in his writing of, of this piece, he shared one of the pieces with me, and it touched my heart in a way that not a lot of music does. And I just went, oh, I have to help this guy. <laughs> and so when, when he had the full cycle done and had the first few performances of it, I've been looking for ways to, to help him make it real in the world. And um, there was a grant from the Utah Division of Arts and Museums, which I applied for. We got some money so that we could do this workshop and so that we could do the performance at the Leonardo and it, it's just been a, a beautiful thing um, to, to work with him and to see him in action because he is a very special person. Now there's a woman crouched in the shadows. Now that's an odd place to be. People walking past stare at her so she moves to beat the heat. But she's afraid to kick up dust as Peter Clausen walks across the street. 16 April 1905 on his way to the apothecary. You see, Clausen is a bit of a dandy. And if he stops to brush his feet, he may not get the ointment for his wife and her legs have been aching for weeks, but then she won't go to Lake Geneva. On June 23, she won't introduce her son Richard to Mademoiselle Depinay, and then Richard and Catherine won't marry on December 17th. They won't give birth to Friedrich, and Friedrich won't have his baby, but without Friedrich's little boy hands, the world would change, you see, because the European Union of 1979 might never come to be. So she's walking on tiptoe, tiptoe. Salt Lake Arts Academy Choir. She's walking on tiptoe, tiptoe. She's walking on tiptoe, tiptoe. She's walking on tiptoe, tiptoe. She's walking on tiptoe. She's walking on tiptoe. Okay, you get it. So what's so can somebody else tell the story? Is how she knows what will happen in the future. Aha! How does she know what's going to happen in the future? You have to seize it, and and just do it. And so I I just I love inquiry based models for that reason, where you just kind of throw a problem at them and make them sit in it, and they'll get a little confused and frustrated until they start to do it, and they figure it out, and they they give you results. I threw them a problem in the workshop yesterday. Write a song. And it was amazing how they responded to it. Now, some of them responded by going, too scary, no, I can't do it. But some of them were done with the song before five minutes went by. You know, it's, oh, you're already done? What the heck? <laughs> As I watch these children write these songs, they're also writing songs about how time is short. In spite of the fact that they think time can drag by, they also recognize that there are times when time is really short. When they're doing the things they really want to do, time is short. And, um, and I know that if, if that is self-evident at their age, there's got to be some truth to that.
with her backup band, Randall Williams on guitar, a cellist, and a drummer. Another show took place outside the theater. Teacher Jenny White explains. We've created some 3D models of a 2D representation of space-time and how gravity and speed can affect the actual passage of time. And uh, the closer you are to a large gravitational object, the slower time actually goes. Time is not um, uh, a constant tick-tock, tick-tock. Time travels differently depending upon the circumstances. And so we looked at some of those, and then we thought about, what does that mean? In the real world, what the heck does that mean? If you're on a spaceship traveling at half the speed of light, you're going to, you know, time is going to go more slowly for you. What in the world does that mean? And uh, we got into some really interesting conversations uh, based on some of the theories. And and there are 3D models that they created. Uh, They're going to have those tonight, and they'll be taking those around to the audience and showing with marbles and and cloth and and such uh, how Einstein perceived uh, his, his ideas. I'm Katie. I'm 12. Um, I'm Chloe, and I'm also 12. I'm Dina, and I'm 12. Ooh, the so, black hole. Yes. Tell me about so the black hole. Black. A black hole is, instead of being just a normal star or large blue star, uh, it has so much mass that it will pull gravity and light and everything into it, into a single and point. time also. So it would go, things would go around and circle around it until it was taken into the middle and no longer seen again. So yeah, if it if it if if you were to go into a black hole, then if there were somehow miraculously a white hole connected to it, which a black hole sucks things in, a white hole spits things out. You could go to another place in space time. So you go and then you'd be on another place in space. And do you guys want to go to that other place? Well, I'm not sure. Well, you can't really survive it. You would get a thigh. (laughs) And you would also have to squeeze down to the amount of, say, less than an atom. So that's kind of impossible for humans to do. Also, if you were to somehow survive to make it to the middle, to the inside of a black hole, you would be vaporized by all the light trapped inside. So basically... So it's kind of impossible to get through a wormhole, even if it did exist. But maybe if we could, someday, we could go to Alpha Centauri. (laughs) The closest star. Well, what a fascinating presentation. Thanks, girls. Are you looking forward to the show? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, It is a a surge. (laughs) Um, Looking at all of these different theories of time through different lenses, through different songs that have different feelings to them. There are ballads, there are, um, you know, more raucous numbers, and um, you'll be swept away. I think the audience will be completely swept away. This was a fairy tale public ed story where authors, scientists, teachers, radio people, musicians, students, and the Leonardo Science and Art Center came together to create, sing, include, and imagine with Einstein at the epicenter. Do you have a favorite Einstein quote? That the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It lies at the cradle of true art and true science. 
This January, Alan Lightman published his seventh work of fiction titled Mr. G, a story of creation told by God who lives in a void, a place of emptiness without time or space. Mr. G, G is lowercase, decides out of boredom to create the world. It has both joy and tragedy in the book. Mr. G is is all-powerful, but he's not all-knowing, and he can't always predict the consequences of what he creates. And he's actually distressed to find that that his universe contains suffering. There's a fair amount of comedy in the book as well, but it's a serious book about science and religion and philosophy. I think that religion and science are the two greatest forces that have shaped human civilization, and I think they're both here to stay. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn and Susie Montgomery. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Randall Williams for his amazing talent in the classroom, and to Jen Hodge for making this Einstein's Dreams event a success, and for making this radio program possible. In this world, time's a local thing. Farther apart, more out of sync. Every heartbeat, every desire, every cormorant wing. Harmonized with every pendulum swing And the only one who sees everything Is the one who will never go home again Yes, the traveler travels on The traveler travels on Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the 40s Musical Review in the Miller Mood USO USO style, presented by the Celebrate America Show, with an evening of dining and dancing to the Larry Smith Orchestra in the USU Ballroom. Event details at CelebrateAmericaShow.com. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan.